Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we're, we're with Andrew Harrigy, a member of the U.S. Alpine Adaptive Ski Team. He skied at the uh, Paralympics in Pyeongchang in 2018, was 18th in the downhill, 24th in the Super G, is ramping up for Beijing, which might be a surprise to some of you out there since we had Tokyo just a couple of months ago. It's really six months in between the summer games in Tokyo and the winter games in Beijing. Andrew, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Hey, this is awesome. Thank you for joining. I mean, literally, it just came back from Sasfe, right? So you've been on snow, and the season is about to ramp up, isn't it? Uh, season's already gone. We're, uh, we were in Sasfe for three weeks, getting some good time on snow, and then uh, we head up to Aspen, snow willing, in about a week or two, get some uh, testing camp finals, finish up in the gym, and then it's race week in, what, three weeks now almost? Is that what it is? It's That's here. when you start the season is in three weeks. Yeah, I believe it's the 24th. How is this right now? Is it is it nerve-wracking for you? You're on the team, so you have a fairly good position approaching Beijing, but you've been injured a fair amount. We were talking about this before. Uh, three broken bones in the last little bit. Uh, you haven't had a chance to ski, didn't really get a chance to ski last year. How are you feeling going into the season just in terms of Beijing, but also in terms of where you are as an athlete? You know, it's kind of nerve wracking, um, to be honest with you, having so little to work with in the last year, because before I even hurt myself, COVID came around and shut down all the skiing from March. So not only did I hurt myself the second day on snow in October that we'd been on all year. I also hadn't skied since March and got my season previous season cut short like a month, two, three months. So it's kind of kind of nerve-wracking and a little bit uh worrisome, but at the same time, really worked with we have a huge support staff and a bunch of people willing to help and guide us on the path. So I kind of have good plan laid out and we've executed the best we can so i feel like i'm ready to go but it's a little bit of hesitance in there because you never know because there's a lot of rust to shake off in a short amount of time there's a lot of rust you have to feel snake bitten to a certain extent just in that you've had some broken bones you broke a bone right before you were supposed to get back on snow uh you know that that whole like can I stay, can I stay healthy? But then also you don't really know until you go through the starting gate, do you? No, I mean, and even like training versus racing is such a different animal too. Like the mental piece it brings in there. I'm sure you had to deal with that a lot too through your progression through the years, but just totally different animals. So this first race of the year here, we're going to be up in Canada. Um, it's going to be a very big litmus test for what it's going to take this season and how much you're going to have to really double down and how much it's going to be or how much it's going to be refining kind of thing. So we're talking about Beijing right now, but how did you end up getting here? I mean, you're, you're an East Coast guy, Enfield, Connecticut. So that's like, 
that's like Hartford. You're not, you're not in the midst of the mountains by any means. No, not, not at all. So I grew up uh, in Connecticut. I mean, we get snowstorms, but like it's gone in the next week and whatever else. There's not really any large mountains around us. We've got sundown, which is maybe like about 45 minutes, an hour away. And is a hill we'd go to sometimes after school. My mom would take me because she's the most dedicated person I've ever met. Um, and she'd drag at me and my brother there and really try her best to get us to ski well. And then uh, we'd also go up, take weekends and go to Jiminy Peak and then Mount Snow. And their adaptive programs helped get me in, into it and uh, a lot more independent. Because, I mean, the first three years I was skiing, I wasn't able to ski by myself. I wasn't strong enough. Um, because of my disability, I just couldn't keep myself up. So my mom had to pull the pole and hold, carry me basically down the hill on the other end of it the whole way. She's a trooper. I'll give her that much. Now, she teaches adaptive skiing, right? Did that happen before or after you started skiing? Uh, so it happened after. So we'd gone through the programs and learned to ski. And I um, it took me maybe like four years before I really, so three years when I finally started skiing on my own and then maybe four when I became really independent. And at that point, we've been skiing in Mount Snow and I actually ended up joining a mentorship program. So me and my brother would help other kids coming up and be kind of that like on the same age level so the kids can relate a little bit better and kind of have a friend to ski with rather than just an adult talking to them the whole time, you know what I mean? Um, and while we were doing that, my mom was helping, um, and learning how to instruct and slowly worked her way up and she's now got a PSIA. I'm not sure if it's level one or two, but she's worked her way up there. And so that mentorship program, it got me a lot of good time on snow, a lot of experience, and it also helped her push <laughs> the knowledge she learned with me forward to help other kids too. Nice. So can you describe to people how, how you ski? I mean, this is, this is part of it, right? You said you were holding on to the pole. Your mother was holding on to the pole and basically <laughs> keeping you upright. Why was that necessary? Yeah. So I've got a lower limb physical disability, which basically affects me from the waist and like hips down. Um, and it's basically like my muscles are kind of weak and tight and contracted. It's almost like I'm fighting a spasm the whole time or a cramp or something like that. And they, one muscle will fight against the other. So say I want to use my quad to, excuse me, extend my leg. The hamstring is telling it no the whole time. So I've kind of got to overcome that. And at that age, I really just wasn't strong. I just didn't have the, a lot of experience doing that kind of thing. I mean, I've rode the bike around my bike around the neighborhood or I've gone playing tag with friends, stuff like that, but I just didn't have that kind of functional strength to stay upright. So it just took a long time to develop that. Which is the nature of cerebral palsy, right? I mean, the, the fact of the matter yeah. is the muscles, I mean, this is, this is like the opposite of like, of like the cat, right? The cat is so good at like relaxing all the muscles and it's why you see them like jump on the roof or whatever, you know, just like these yeah, crazy yeah. things, but cerebral palsy would be the opposite side of that where, as you were saying, your quad and your hamstring are both firing at the same time, which works in opposition, which is 
often, I mean, I, I've seen some, some CP athletes who, who look like they're completely ripped as well too. It's not necessarily always functional muscle because you've got to be able to, to, to get the right muscle to work at the right time. How were you, how are you able to, to achieve that? Or, or how are you trying to achieve that? So back then it was kind of just the whole like beating your head against the wall till it works kind of thing. And my mom being very persistent and keeping me going, even when I would say, no, this sucks. I want to go home. She kept pushing and I'm, I'm really glad and I love her for it because otherwise I wouldn't have this great sport. But um, over time, it grew into just like me working on strength and then getting time in the gym, developing uh, the muscle groups, and then not only just developing but learning how one plays into the other and i just can't do too much of this or it impairs this um so kind of the balance act the whole time and just trying to keep that even and level um and then now i also use outriggers when i ski so the whole time i'd ski normal ski boots skis um and poles which the poles also helped me a lot because it gave me every now and then something to just touch and like because my upper body is a lot stronger and more balanced. So just that like little compensation, but now I'll use outriggers and it makes me a lot more competitive. And they're, I, I don't know if everyone knows, but they're basically like forearm crutches with skis on the bottom. So you can put a little bit of weight on and like balance, keep your coordination and kind of have it as a recovery tool if you need it, if you're starting to go where you shouldn't be. The intention is to use the outriggers like you would use ski poles. It just gives yeah. you a little bit more margin for error because it slides as opposed to the ski pole, exactly. which does not slide. Yeah. Now I've, I've seen a little bit, I saw that you were injured at one point and you got out, you got out in a mono ski. Have, have you ever yeah. considered a, a mono ski? I mean, this is one of the LW one issues. And I look back at like Chris Young, who, mm-hmm. who skied as an LW one and then, I don't. I, I assume you you overlapped with him, probably or maybe not. Uh, yeah, a couple of years. Not while I was on the team, but he was around and kind of like a figure to look up to while I was kind of coming up through the ranks a little bit. Um, and I didn't even know at that point that he had skied um, as a stand-up skier. That I had thought he was always just in a ski. So that was kind of a cool piece to look up to once I had kind of learned that, and some people kind of made me aware of that. And yeah, I I have hopped in the sit ski and then kind of played around with that while I couldn't put a ski boot on, but the doctor didn't say I couldn't do that. So I figured I'd give it a shot. Um, I'm assuming you didn't and, tell them that that's what you were doing, but I may have insinuated and they may have said, maybe don't recommend it, but we're not going to stop you either. So kind of like a middle ground, which I, I took as a, ah, sure, as long as I'm not doing anything too stupid um so um well you, so, you, did, uh, you, know, you did mention that you broke a bone racing one of your buddies up a ramp or down a ramp or something so the, the, it yeah, is but, within the realm of possibility <laughs> right yeah true well, i just had to put my competitive nature to the side a little bit for that one this one is competitive nature came out and uh, kind of bit me in the butt a little bit for that ramp issue but no, yeah, played around the monoski a little bit, and then uh, 
it's a uh, but it's kind of something I've actually struggled with a little bit decision making because it may be better for my body long term and sort of stuff like that. Um, and I may be able to be a little bit more competitive in that field, but I don't feel like I've done all I'm capable of as a standing skier. And I, I feel like if I switch now, or kind of like quit on myself. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, just, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I feel like I still have more to reach and I want to get there before I transition, but it's something that I'm thinking about um, maybe post Beijing. Um, and hence why I got a little bit of time while I was on the mend and couldn't um, ski otherwise. And plus it just got me out of the mountain, got me outside. And honestly, I feel like just being out in nature and getting out there has that those healing properties that like sitting on the couch all day just can't get you. <laughs> no, that's for sure. That's for sure. And I, I mean, I just ask, yeah, for those for those exact reasons, I think that that Chris ended up partially moving into a mono ski because he because he'd beat up his knees so much, yeah. just not having that musculature to be able to support the joints. Uh, I might have had something to do with it too. I, I think he didn't like having a mono skier actually beat him, so that might have that might have pushed him. And then he got considerably faster in a mono ski. So you can ask him. I mean, that's 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 a supposition on my part, but but uh, just planting that seed for you, you know. I mean, sometimes it, it was actually it was amazing to watch him go and and, and become that much stronger on the ski, yeah, you know, just sure. where it supported his. His ability, but not to talk you out of out of what you're doing right now. Just sort of a just sort of a curiosity there. Now, as you're approaching Beijing and as you're going to Canada, now are these speed events that you're going? Because you're really more of a speed skier, right? Downhill and Super G are kind of your your go-to events. Yeah, those are a little bit more where my technique and abilities can shine a little bit. But I, as you know, like every little bit helps and. The better I can get at GS and Palm, the more it'll help in the other events too. And it, I'm trying to get better, and I'd like to be better um, at them. So it kind of gives me that experience. And if nothing else, it also gives. I, I feel like I'm at a point where the more times I can get in a start gate, get those nerves, and get past them, and that kind of thing, the better off I'll be. So whether that be an event I really am not a fan of. So be it. And plus, I have a uncanny knack of not performing well and then performing well just often enough to be told I have to keep doing it. So. Hold on. So, so okay. So you, you're a little bit vague in that. So, so, so I'm assuming that that the speed events are the ones that you actually enjoy and slalom and giant slalom not quite as much, but you pop in there yeah. occasionally enough that you have to keep doing it. Yeah, GS isn't quite my favorite. Um, so, but I'll do, I'll have like three races in a row where I'll blow up or make a big mistake or whatever and not really finish well. And then I'll have one where I somehow pull out like a third or fourth place finish in against like our national team guys or in the US or whatever. And then all of a sudden coach goes, oh, well, I guess you're racing more GS for the rest of the year. So this is how it goes, unfortunately, I guess. That competitive spirit I was talking about must nip in or something and not let me continue to do poorly. So nice. What do you what do you do well? 
like like you said that the downhill and super G are more of your favorites versus versus giant slalom. So what do you do well and what is a what's a challenge for you? Yeah, so I, it's kind of like the tempo of the event, the speed that it comes at you. Um, mm -hmm. With my spasticity, trying to push through that in those quicker tempo events in the GS and the slalom where you've got to be constantly moving, it's kind of hard to push through and get my legs to match that tempo. But in the super G and the downhill, even though it's a faster speed in when it comes at me, it comes at me slower for whatever reason. And so it's just more time to progress and ease my legs into it. And they're a lot more responsive that way. Um, they fight me a lot less. So it's easier for me to maintain where I need to be positioned body-wise and on the hill. And, and so a lot of that for you, I mean, this is, uh, from watching you ski, there's a bit of, like you've got to do it skeletally, right? I mean, you've got to set up your body in a way that you can get the skis on edge and you can, because you don't have a ton of, of, of muscular strength to be able to yeah. support yourself. And so, so I'm just trying to interpret what you're saying about the speed events that it gives you a little bit more of that time to get the, to roll the ski up on edge and to get into a strong skeletal position to be able to make that turn. Whereas in the, in the slalom and giant slalom, you're kind of fighting to get into that position. And the more you fight, the more your body fights you. Is that, yeah, is that correct? Sure. Yeah, it's more of that like build that progression versus the just hucking it out there and hoping it goes the right way kind of thing. You know? Exactly. So what's your, what's your training like? You're at the train at the at the uh, training center in Colorado Springs, not right now the USOPC training center. What's your training like? What's your dry land like to be able to prepare for the season? Yeah, so right now we're on a um, five-a-day program with a majority of those. So Monday, Tuesday, we got two-a-days. Um, we're doing a strength workout four days a week and cardio four to five times a week. Um, guess we could call Wednesday our rest day because we only have the one workout but doesn't sure feel like a rest in the middle of the week there um and then just kind of that like uh mobility and core stuff on the weekend extra to kind of like round it off a little bit and um kind of stay fresh and moving um so we're constantly moving and building and then we've got mixed in uh every now and then like during the off season we're still skiing um, like we were skiing in May and August and then October. And then now we'll be skiing as long as weather permitting, we'll be skiing right through till hopefully April. Um, so it's kind of, uh, we're kind of at the peak now or at the, we're kind of leveling off a little bit so we can kind of be more in maintenance shape for the season. Um, but we've been building quite a bit for the last couple months. Um, straight through since practically last season ended doesn't you'd think uh with being a one season sport we'd have a little bit more downtime but it's right back at it two three weeks later and you don't really get, get much of a time to settle down especially when you're coming off an injury and you've got that much more work to do how about for you specifically what are the things because obviously 
everybody's going to do strength training. Everybody's going to do yeah. cardio. How about for you specifically, what do you need to do in order to be at your best when you get on the hill and be able to take advantage of that, of that functional strength? Yeah. So we're, that's honestly like still a work in progress. And with having CP, it honestly probably will always be a work in progress, but we're a lot closer now than we have been. And just, it's that kind of, um, we found it's not so much just moving heavy stuff, picking up the big weights. It's a lot of the functional movement weight and just throw it like, whether it be throwing on a weight vest and going through some movements to add a little bit more resistance to build that strength or stuff like that. Um, it's kind of, and it's kind of the, a little bit lower weight movement, but more range and more trying to hit that end range, like the last 10% really hammer that home um, is where we've kind of found the bread and butter of building get my building blocks all put together is that so so for you it's it's about being it's about being explosive is that what you mean like that last 10 percent kind of thing to be able to move yeah, quickly being, yeah so being explosive and then also on top of that being dynamic i guess would be mm -hmm. the word to use there um so like for example just sitting there and doing bench press or squats all day long isn't going to be as helpful as say doing a lunge or something that adds a little bit of movement to it um to kind of or like a band to add a little bit of resistance for cues for me to use muscles that on the average person would be very would be very much a part of the movement but for me because of how my muscles interact they're not as strong or as um noticeable i guess um so that kind of cues them to actually do what they're supposed to do so so, so effectively you're adding like the coordination effectively in with the sure. strength part of it exactly yeah yeah which is which is exactly what you're gonna what you have to do when you're on the hill remember reading something at one point and they were talking about ski racers in a lot of ways are the are some of the strongest athletes out there because you have to do this strength on an uneven surface. And yeah. so, so you have to be strong and you have to be coordinated at the same time. Yeah. So on uh, top of that, you hurl yourself down a hill with planks strapped to your feet to add more spice to it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And there's, there's the mental aspect of it as well. Are you doing yeah. Are you doing any any sports science kind or I'm um, not sports science but uh but sports psychology kind of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, I have uh there's a sports psychologist. We have a couple of them that work with our team and then some of the other teams um because we kind of split resources with some of the other programs like uh the Paranordic team or the Paris snowboard team stuff like that. So, I'm doing my best to utilize all the tools I have in my tool belt right now. So I'll meet with, uh, we've got a sports psychologist I meet with pretty regularly, especially going through an injury. There's a lot going through your head. So it's really helpful to have access to her and be able to reach out whenever I need it. And then we've also got um, another sports psychologist who specializes in sleep data. So we're going through some of that now, 
tracking our sleep patterns, how we can optimize that so we get the most out of recovery time and are primed and ready to go when it comes time to go. And then nutritionist, uh, strength coach, all trying to utilize everything I've got out there to try and be as ready as I can, you know? What's that like when you get out on the hill? Because there's that optimism, right? I mean, you've been doing the strength, you've been doing the coordination, you've been doing the sports psychology, you've been doing the nutrition, and then and then it's a matter of like putting it all together, right? Because I mean, that stuff, it's like, I've been working hard. I, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then, and then you get on the hill and, and how has that, how does that feel for you now that you've been on the hill, given all the work that you've done? It honestly surprises me a little bit every time, especially with all the setbacks recently, I keep going out there and expecting to be hurting in pain or not ready to go. Um, but team that we have has built such a robust plan that every time I get out there, I'm kind of surprised, like, wow, I'm able to do quite a bit more than I expected I'd be able to do out here. So it's uh, it's definitely great to have those resources, be able to use them, and then see the fruits that they bear firsthand and feel it on the hill. Um, and there is still that apprehension because I don't know what it's going to feel like once I hop in a race gate or race start gate for the races, but I feel like every day we get on snow, I'm getting that much closer and it feels great. Are you allowed to build throughout the season, both in terms of the team, but in terms of your own sense of, you know, your production? Yeah, absolutely. So that, um, I feel like I personally, that's something I pride myself on is I keep taking in that input so that I can give more output as the season goes on. Um, and we really have a plan. So like strength wise, we're kind of pretty much focusing on maintaining and then a little bit of growth, not the same peaks you see during the summer, but um, we're working on that's going to still increase. And then there's just so much opportunity for growth that I, I plan on capitalizing on throughout the season. And honestly, my best month is usually January and February when I've kind of had that time to really work up into it. So it's great that we have world champs in January and then the game's right at the start of February or end of February. So it's right in with my peaks. <laughs> That's a crazy season in that you have world championships in January, Paralympics, in March, and it's because of COVID that the World Championships were po were pushed from last year to this year. But in some ways, it kind of gives you two shots at it, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, COVID did do some crazy things and added some craziness, but honestly, it benefited me a little bit because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to participate with being on the men's last year. Um, so it, yeah, you're right. It does kind of give you those two shots. Um, and it also kind of gives you that little bit of a refocus and like, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm capable of um, in my mind as well. It kind of gives you that little piece of, okay, this is how I did here. I know I can do better and push even more to be here in a month time when it 
matter. I'm not going to say matters a ton more because they're both pretty up there, but you know, it's only every four years, but it matters quite a bit more, more at the same time, you know? Yeah. And, but at the same time, you have to prepare for different things, right? So going to Lillehammer in January, I, I can pretty much guarantee you it's going to be bulletproof in Lillehammer in January. It's going to be like New England conditions at Hofiel. And, and then you're going to Beijing and you don't really know what to expect, do you? No, well, that's the other interesting thing. Usually we get the test event the year before, so we get to have a race on the hill, see how it feels, kind of feel out the terrain a little bit, what we can expect weather conditions-wise, but because of COVID, we don't get that. So it's for everybody except the home team, it's kind of going to be learn on the fly. Um, I and mean, we can have some expectations based on like weather patterns in the past and stuff like that, but it's going to be a little bit of a surprise. And especially with my best event being downhill, that's day one. So it's kind of like I get the biggest surprise and then I have to go ahead from there, you know? Right. And downhill, the, the benefit of downhill is you get two, sometimes three days of training. Yeah on that course it sounds like there is some is, is a fairly significant steep section I and mean, what, what we're hearing like 65 percent or 65 degrees uh somewhere i'm gonna be, I'm gonna be honest with you that's too far down the road for me to worry about right now i am um, anything <laughs> i heard about that just in one ear not the other i got right now is just get through canada see how that feels and then push for world champs and then, then we'll refocus after that. And that's often the best way to approach it really is that you, you yeah. come off a great summer of training both in the gym and on the hill and you get there and say, okay, well now we just need to keep getting better, keep getting better. We talked a little bit about conditions. You've gone from the East Coast, from, from living in Connecticut, skiing in Vermont, skiing in Massachusetts a bit to being out in Utah. So you've, have you finished your degree at Westminster College? Yeah, I got my bachelor's, oh boy, time flies. I think it was two years ago now. Um, feels like it was a month ago. <laughs> but yeah, I got my bachelor's there, so that's all done. Um, went, took me five years, but I managed to do it in seven semesters. Just that whole trying to do school and skiing in the winter thing little tough so I kind of took the winter sessions off and went summer and spring and uh knocked that out or summer and fall and knocked that out um, as quick as possible but that's also that's a huge help with because there's a relationship between between Westminster and the ski team right or and and the USOPC isn't there, is uh, there not, not so much now since uh we're now under the USOPC and they have the partnership with USSA, so it's a little different. Um, uh, but that's the problem. Yeah. I did have quite the benefit of going to a school that sends, on average, 20 to 30 people to the Winter Olympics every time. So I had a lot of professors that were willing to work with me, and the school's really willing to work with me. And so it's kind of that really collaborative um, input on both sides that really helped me honestly succeed as well as I did. I think I graduated with like a 3.8, which with 
all the workload involved, I'd say I did pretty well. Tooting my own horn a little bit there, but <laughs> uh, it sounds like you did great. And 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 so this is a a, a bachelor's in 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 what in nursing science is that what it is? Uh, yeah, so it's under the technically under the nursing school. Um, it's a degree in public health, which at the time my dad was asking like, oh, what are you going to do with that? And then now all of a sudden since COVID hit, it's like, oh, you've got job security. <laughs> so kind of kind of nice and reassuring on that end a little bit. And what does that mean that you'll end up doing? I mean, will this, because pharmacology was one of the ideas, epidemiology. Yeah, so pharmacology was originally until I started working with some of the pharmacists in the area. I had a, I worked in the pharmacy at CVS for three years, almost four. Um, and just over time learned it's maybe not for me, especially because once you go to pharmacy school, that's all you're doing. I'd have to retire from skiing and I wasn't quite ready for that. And then go another $100,000 in debt on top of the 20 I already had. is not stoked about that. Um, so I ended up looking at other options. Honestly, ironically enough, we had, uh, some of the professors go around to the dorms, like the first couple months of school, and then like talk to everybody, say what's going on. And the one that came to my door ended up being my academic advisor in my public health program. So he ended up, um, guiding me that way, which really grateful for. And, um, so it gives me a couple opportunities. I focused in epidemiology, so kind of studying how diseases spread and the number side of it and that kind of thing. Um, I actually um, worked this past summer with the Salt Lake County Health Department, kind of tracking some of the numbers with hospital data and that sort of stuff. So it can be sent back to the CDC and stuff like that. Um, so getting a little bit of experience while I can and while I was a little bit reduced workload for skiing and using take advantage of the brain while the body's hurt. Fair enough. And, and there were obviously a lot of numbers that were going on on a daily basis for all of us with oh, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> what's going on in the, in the state, what's going on in the county, what's going on in the country, what's going on in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily I didn't have to focus on the world since that seems like a lot <laughs> for someone with a lot more time and dedication than uh, I can commit at that time so glad someone's able to do it but luckily i was able to focus quite a bit more small scale right well this is going to be an interesting one too just based on whether whether you know it seems like this is going to be around for a while and so we're going to have to learn how to deal with it and you might be in a position to help with that so you did the school thing but you also left the east coast and came to some softer snow too how how is yeah. it How's that transition? And then how's that transition when you have to go back to Europe or wherever too? So it's a, it definitely was a little rough at the start. Actually, my first time skiing powder was out in a uh, copper. So there's a learn to race program for adaptive athletes run out of Copper Mountain, uh, or no, Breckenridge, sorry. Um, the Hartford Ski Spectacular. That was kind of how I got my start into the racing program. Um, and I think like the third, fourth day, they had gotten like a foot of powder. So everyone was so, except for me. I had never skied powder a day in my life. And they're like, oh, just come follow us. I get about like maybe 200 yards away from the top of the ski lift. And I had to call my coach crying like, 
I don't know how to, well, I was 14 years old, be like, I don't know how to do this. It sucks. Come help me. <laughs> and so I had to end up following her track. Like she'd pack out the snow in front of me and I followed her the whole way down. Luckily, I've come to love it quite a bit since then. Um, but it was definitely quite the awakening when I moved out here and everything wasn't just like hard and frozen over like an ice rink. <laughs> it's funny how that, how what you know can be the easiest thing where you think, oh, it says on the license plates, greatest snow on earth. And you're like, I don't like this stuff at all. It's too deep. It's not working for me. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, uh, I got quite a bit more experience with that. I now just get upset every time we seem to go over to Europe for a race or whatever. Every time I leave, two days later, it dumps a foot, two feet of snow. So my buddies keep telling me, ah, yeah, go out of town, but I keep getting upset every time I do. <laughs> the the Deer Valley experience doesn't quite leave Deer Valley that far. <laughs> um, no, so it's quite, it honestly gives you a little bit of that feeling of home growing up skiing on the East Coast and that hard, hard pack, um, rougher conditions. So it's kind of, I'm glad I had that um, base to build off of. Um, it does still provide its challenge because it's that, that steep, but you also are at that hard packed and icy and hard to get a grip on. And then you add quite a few more degrees of steepness to it. It kind of adds some challenge, that's for sure. <laughs> it does add some challenge. And you've got the whole world that you're competing against suddenly, not just the people on your team. And that, yeah, exactly. that improves it as well. So wh what will your season look like? I mean, we talked about world championships. We talked about Beijing. But you have a bunch of World Cups as well. You said you're going to be in, in Canada in three weeks. Where in Canada yeah, we are have, you? Uh, we're going to go to Panorama. We have a NORAM up there, um, kind of start the season. And then December, we have a World Cup in Switzerland. Um, we're there, come back right before Christmas, which will be and nice. Which events are you going to do at both of these? Uh, so Canada is going to be Super G, GS, and Slalom. And then I believe the calendar changes every time I look at it, but every, I believe in December we'll be doing, uh, it's mostly GS and Falum over there. Um, we come home for Christmas break. I get to go spend some time with the family. And then we have, I believe, a week either in Winter Park or in Europe again. Um, and then we're off to Norway to get ready for World Champs. Um, and get after it and then i believe we may have one more race in between there and the games or we have an extended period to take a break they're kind of having a little bit more flexible schedule with the team this year with everything going on that we're kind of being a little bit more selective with where we go on an individual basis and what we need to set ourselves up for the most success in the big events exactly what's that travel like for you do you enjoy the travel part of it uh until i have to check my bags in at the airport because <laughs> we travel with quite a bit of stuff and it doesn't fly cheap <laughs> that is that is true so you're paying a lot of excess baggage is that what you're saying uh yeah luckily we got a little bit more help with it this year and then sometimes if we send the right guy up first the sweet talk the Whoever's working the check-in, sometimes we get a little bit better deal too. But um, it's, it's a little fun gamble every time how much you're going to get in 
bag fees. But no, it's honestly great because before the skiing, I hadn't left North America. Um, I mean, we'd gone down to Florida a couple times, down to Disney, or uh, we had our grandparents had a like, little spot down there where they stayed every now and then. Um, but other than that, like my immediately family, we hadn't left North America. So it was kind of cool to get those experience and just banking up the airline models so I can help give them some of that experience too at some point here once COVID slows down a bit um, and it's easier to travel. But no, it's amazing. We get to see so many beautiful parts of the world. We travel. I mean, I'm just lucky to do the sport I do where we primarily work outside. Um, so we get to see these beautiful areas and go to these extraordinary mountain ranges in the middle of these beautiful countries rather than some of the other sports like where you just travel to a foreign country just to go sit in the gym and shoot basketball where it looks the same as it does everywhere else so really fortunate in that regard and gained some really cool experiences met some really cool people in the process it still will be a challenge though, right? With like, so we oh, saw absolutely. in Tokyo, there were no fans in Tokyo. Yeah, and from what I hear, it'll be the same way for Beijing and it'll be another added uh, um, factor in Beijing that we're, so normally we have that centralized village where everyone stays, you get to see the rest of the teams, you get to see the rest of the nations, you get to make friends with the sports that you very rarely see, like. Uh, for us, like we could see the hockey team and hang out with those guys, which is pretty cool. But this time, there's going to be because the venues are so spread out, there's, and to minimize COVID, they're going to be three separate venues. So we're going to be off by ourselves um, in the mountain cluster, and then uh, hockey and curling will be off by themselves, and snowboarding and Nordic will be off by themselves. So kind of in some ways, because Lillehammer and world champs for the first time they're going to do us uh nordic and snowboard together in some ways world champs will be more like the games than the actual games will in that social aspect at least will your family be able to go to lillehammer um we're still looking into it um haven't really figured that out yet um but at the same time it's pretty hard um to have them go to some of these trips because you have to be focused and working on what you're working on and between you train in the morning or race in the morning and then you have a workout in the afternoon you have your recovery program you work with the pt and then you eat dinner and go to bed there's not really a whole ton of time so it's kind of hard because they're there and you get to wait it's really cool you get to wave at them in the stands but then that's like sometimes feels like the closest you get so it's it's a little hard but we're we're look, looking into what works best it might be i might try and have them come out to nationals instead a little bit more of a laid-back environment and then we can actually go do stuff because it's the end of the season and i can actually hang out with them and with it being in the u.s it's a little bit easier covid restriction wise to manage stuff that can be a challenge. They're on they're on vacation and you're working, which gets exactly, to be, which is which is a big deal. 
but it what, sounds yeah, like, I mean, it's not, what's yeah. that? Especially when they come show you all the pictures, all the cool stuff they saw that day, and you're like, oh man, I just saw the 20 gates in front of me, and which way I was supposed to go around them, you know? So. Well, you're, you're just, you know, in some ways you're just starting in your career. I think that the way that, that it goes is that you recognize where you want to return. You don't you don't get to be a tourist in these in these locations. You see the hotel or the village, and you see often one trail, maybe two trails on the mountain. Exactly. All right, this is a place I want to come back to, but uh, but yeah. So it's a funny thing. But but how about like with your mother? It sounds like you shared like you shared the sport. Like she was such an important part of the sport. What is do, do you think about that in the start? Do you think about sort of honoring how she helped you get into it uh not quite in the start gate in the start gate i really have to clear my head and just let everything else go but i do fondly think about and quite often how much effort she put into getting me where i'm not even with just skiing but everything she always pushed me to do whatever i was capable of and then some um whether that be soccer baseball um, she tried hockey for a little while, but I am not good on hockey skates. <laughs> um, so she really pushed me to do all that I can. And so did my dad in their own ways, kind of made me the competitor I am and gave me these resources. So I'm very grateful for them every day. And, uh, they shaped my career in the start until I was ready to take it over for myself. So very grateful who who are your heroes i mean obviously it sounds like i mean your parents to a certain extent are your heroes but as an athlete do, do you model yourself after after anyone or any bunch of people or so one of them when i before i really got in the sport was really cool we went so as a family we'd go to the warren miller movie at the start of the season and that was kind of like how we started the season and really got pumped up and amped to go skiing. And in one of them, the first time I had been exposed to like someone skiing at the big level was actually uh, Kevin Bramble. He was in one of the Warren Miller movies and got to see that. So that was kind of what sparked it a little bit and then got me into the more involved in the sport. And then outside of that, it's one hurts lately to say I really wish it didn't but uh tom brady's up there just for that work ethic the drive and like how much he puts into it every day um i can't say that i haven't ever eaten a strawberry because i have but um it yeah, he's really up there um i really appreciate everything he's given it does hurt me that he's not a patriot anymore but eventually i'll come to live with it <laughs> Well, but you're you're a Connecticut guy too, so sometimes you guys are on that line where you can go south to New York or you can come north to New England, Boston, that kind of thing. So you were a Patriots fan all the way along, or I mean, you're pretty you're pretty young. So 2001, you still you you didn't know much about about sports in general. I don't think in 2001. No, probably not. I think that first Super Bowl they won, my dad was getting stoked on the couch while I was playing with the model trains in the back of the living room. So <laughs> it kind of grew into it a little bit, which 
I guess some people would say that makes me like a spoiled fan or something, but um, I'm also a Red Sox fan, so I also know what suffering is. <laughs> um, well, you don't know you what know, suffering is. You're too young to know what suffering is. You... Yeah. Every other year they suck. Every other year they're good. There's no consistency. <laughs> Hold on, but they've won four times in your in your lifetime. Okay, this is... that, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> You didn't. You didn't have to go through the Bill Buckner in '86 or Bucky Dent in '78. Yeah, no, I did not. <laughs> You've got a fair point. Uh, so I guess I have no, <laughs> no leg to stand on there. But no, my dad was a fan. I kind of really got it from him. Which, and then my aunt was actually a Giants fan, so she definitely. We still hear it for the two Super Bowls to them, but. Uh, no, my dad got me that way. And we're kind of on the section of Connecticut where it's honestly 50-50. Like, you could be one root for one team and your neighbor roots for another. So that kind of makes things interesting. Yeah, Connecticut is one of those that's totally, it can be totally separate. And, I mean, you probably even get, like, Mets fans and stuff like that in, in Connecticut, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. It, it seems like whatever the hot team at the time when people started to pay attention is whoever they root for which I guess makes the Patriots quite a popular team, but it's all right. Patriots were a popular team on both sides, right? Like people from the region, oh yeah, I'm a Patriots fan. And the rest of the country was like, I hate those guys. So yeah, well, I honestly was surprised when I moved out to Utah, the amount of Patriots fans there were, which I mean, I guess that's part of it is like, there's a lot of, movement into Utah. So you get a lot of that, but also like the native Utahns, cause they don't have a team like would pick one and the Patriots were a big thing like at that time. So um, kind of interesting, the spread you get, but they either love them or hate them. There's no real in between. <laughs> and exactly. I, I wear my, I wear my hat proud and hear it about every day in the state of Colorado. <laughs> oh yeah. Well with the Broncos, that's for sure. They, those yeah. fans, they've had some success, definitely. They haven't been great recently, but Peyton Manning back in the in the day, and and obviously Elway back in the day. But uh, yeah. but so with with this year, I mean, you said that when you go to a games, when you go to a World Cup, that it is so busy that it's just you have to stick with your routine. Is there anything in Beijing that you really want to do or see? And will you be able to see anything? Uh, from what I hear, it sounds like we're kind of in there. We're doing what we're there to do, and then we're out, um, which it might even be so, like, the athletes that went to Tokyo, as soon as their event was done, they had to be out within two, what, 24 or 48 hours. So I, I have a feeling we'll be pretty much in that same situation. Um, so I'm not really making plans to go do stuff. Um, I really didn't even make plans for Pyeongchang, but we ended up going to see some pretty cool stuff. Um, so it's kind of what you have time for and what you can fit in, um, which also depends, again, like on what events you're doing. If you're doing all of them, you don't really have much time. If you're only doing half, you have a little bit more, but then you may be leaving early. So it, Again, that's part of that same thing where it's a little bit too early to worry about um, and kind of letting it get a little bit closer before I start 
making plans and actually getting that 100% here going before I start making plans because we don't even have the team selected yet for the games. Right, exactly. And and it sounds like it sounds like things in Beijing will be buttoned up that you just you will be able to go. I mean, it really sounds like you'll go from your room to the mountain and back to your room yeah. that you really won't even be able to go much of anywhere in the village. There's something interesting happening and because you you've talked about your competitive nature, something interesting happening at world championships this year right so if you get a chance to go to world championships they'll have the traditional events but they're running a parallel too aren't they at world championships yeah that's what i've heard so that's gonna be a little bit interesting um the first time i think we might be the first time or the second time we're doing it as a para sport so it'll be pretty interesting to see how that kind of shakes out um and how they've roll some of the kinks out of it too you know because with having a factor system in our sport it adds that extra little bit of challenge um but i'm excited to see how it works out it's one an extra challenge and one more opportunity to prove what you got on that world stage so it should be fun is this something that that plays into your hand being a competitive guy that you get a chance to go head to head because well, Skiing's a sport. There's only one person on the on the course at a time. Suddenly now you've you've head to head and you just have to beat that one person to advance. Yeah, I will say it is kind of a little bit of a, when you look out of the peripheral of your eye and like see them chasing you down and where you're like, okay, we're getting after it. We gotta get going, you know. That look, I'm not gonna say it makes you like fight that much harder, but it just gives you that like extra little bit of a oomph coming through the finish when you make it across before they do but like extra little bit of pump up at the end winter park used to run a pro race a parallel uh, they, pro race do they still do yeah, that they still do that um it's just every time they do it's always got something going on it's usually we around the same time we have a pretty big fundraiser with the nac and so that being the home team i'd much rather support the home crew and then try and go head off over there. So just the way it ends up working out. Exactly. So let's, uh, let's, let's finish up. You've, you've had, you've had a bunch of injuries and having those injuries and having some of the challenges, how do you, how do you keep going from that? What's the story that you tell yourself to keep keep moving when when you break another bone just as you're about to get cleared to get back on snow well you know it's not easy <laughs> that's for sure um and i've kind of learned it takes like a good week or so of just like not thinking about it just going doing other stuff like have just living my life for a little bit and then using that support system but then kind of bringing it back to that competitive nature and back to the other piece we talked about a little bit earlier of feeling like I haven't given all I've got yet. Want to put my best self out on the hill and see where that shakes out. Because it'd be awesome to be winning all the races and have a gold medal. But even more than that, I just want to put a better performance out every single time until I get to something I'm content with and something I'm stoked at like 
I did the best I possibly could. And I didn't feel like I've done that yet, but it just kept driving me to keep going. And, and you get it in moments, don't you? You get like a section that's really good or that turn that you were shooting for. Is that the thing that keeps you coming back? And, and are you looking for sort of that complete run where you go, yeah, that was it. That was mental, physical, technical. Everything was in concert. We did what we were supposed to do. And, and that's what I was shooting for. Is that, is that what you're, is that what it looks like in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. That's a big piece of it. That and then it, it just breaks down to the love of the sport, like loving what I do and the opportunities I get because of it. And just like, I, I don't know, there are a lot worse things I can imagine than being able to be on the top of a hill, look out and see the gorgeous landscape in front of me and then focus in, push out of a start gate and give it my all and I, I don't know I feel like there's not really many more things I can do to compete with that level of fulfillment and and I would imagine it's really it, it's more significant even when you said you were starting out and your mother had this pole that she was holding and you were basically kind of getting dragged around the mountain you know trying to stay upright and suddenly you're on your own you're on some of the biggest courses in the world I mean that that progression has to be one of the most fulfilling things. Oh, absolutely. Like just the distance I've come metaphorically and literally, uh, just how far I've pushed myself and seen what I'm capable of. And the other piece too, is like when I have someone else with a similar disability that's coming up and they reach out and they're saying like, man, I'm, I see what you do and I'm stoked for the possibilities I have. That's an extra like little kick in the butt and stoke to the fire that uh, keeps me going too, for sure. Yeah, and that's ultimately what it's all about. I mean, it's funny because I mean you're you're on the upswing of your career, but as you look back on it, those those moments that are not necessarily the moments at the biggest races or the moments on the on the podium are really the moments that you look back on because those are the ones that are so informative about who you are as an individual and what you'll be able to do moving forward. So, yeah, cool. Thanks for, thanks for you know, talking to us about your journey, about your journey of where you're going. And we look forward to watching you in Beijing. Well, hopefully, fingers crossed, look forward to watching you in Beijing. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. And it's great to talk to someone who's done it and uh, came before me and got to look up to as I start my career so it's great I appreciate it well you know that's the generational thing we hope that you guys stand on the shoulder uh, stand on our shoulders and do way more than we ever ever conceived of doing so best of luck and keep up the great work thank you Andrew really appreciate it and thank you to, to all of you for joining us as we say every week the greatest compliment you can give us is to tell your friends to tune in we'll be here every wednesday we'll have amazing amazing people talking about what they're doing it will be a podcast eventually so it'll be on youtube and apple and spotify if you can please like us please follow us please tell your friends and please tune in next week and andrew good luck thank you take care thank you